Well, I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to John 16, if you have not already done so. So, how many of you have joy this morning? Raise your hands. Joy. Hallelujah. How many of you have more joy today than you had last Sunday? All right, well, then the message got to a few people anyway. That's good to know. Well, this morning we do continue in our study of fighting for joy, John 16, verses 16 through 24. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ, then you can be assured that you have been given a joy that can never be erased and it can never be negated by anyone or anything in this world. And yet I'm often amazed that Christians believe that joy so often at times is a fruit of the Spirit that is just light and very fleeting, that it kind of comes and goes as life circumstances go up and down. And for many Christians, unfortunately, joy seems to be rooted in how well life is going or in how secure they may feel or perhaps how they're affected by various circumstances in life. But I want you to know, beloved, that biblical joy is not predicated on any of those aforementioned things. Biblical joy absolutely transcends those things. And at its core, biblical joy comes from knowing Jesus. Amen? It comes from knowing Jesus. And we could give a definition, we could say this, that biblical joy is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness which produces in us a faith and assurance, a contentment that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than who we are or in what is happening around us. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit who indwells us and abides with us and it is rooted in the assurances and the sure hope that we find in the Word of God. Now, this is an important distinction to make because we know that the world at large also seeks after joy, but of course, they seek after joy through other means, and in the end, their quest to find joy is really an effort in futility. I want you to consider, for example, the French philosopher Voltaire. He looked for joy in unbelief. He thought that God was just an imagination. He was one who often attacked the Christian faith in his writing. And yet on his deathbed, he cried out, I wish I had never been born. And the nurse that was tending to him said it was the most frightening and hopeless look she had ever seen on a human being. We know certainly that joy is not found in wealth. Steve Jobs, co-founder and CEO of Apple Computer, said this before he died. He said, my life is the essence of success, but aside from work, I have little joy. At this moment, lying on the bed, sick and remembering all my life, I realize that all my recognition and wealth that I have is meaningless in the faith of imminent death. Very sobering, isn't it? We know that joy also is not found in popularity. Six weeks before Elvis Presley died, a reporter asked him, he said, Elvis, when you started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. So are you happy? And Elvis replied, I'm more lonely than any man on earth. And there is, of course, no end to the accounts from people like this who futilely sought joy apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we think about this, I want you to think of how different this is from the disciples. As we compare the accounts of what we see here on earth, how different it is for the disciples after they receive the news that they receive from Jesus. 
Remember that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus warned the disciples that from this point forward, look guys, you're going to face persecution, you're going to face martyrdom, and there are going to be very few days where you are going to feel secure. In fact, any day you could be arrested, you could be killed. And of course, history teaches us that other than the Apostle John, all of the disciples experienced severe physical persecution and martyrdom. Now, knowing the situation, beloved, you might expect the disciples to react very badly. Remember, they were living out a death warrant here. That's what basically Jesus said to them. And you might expect them to be fearful or discouraged or cowering in hopelessness, miserable, unhappy, paralyzed, just saying, look, it's over. But stunningly, we see exactly the opposite in Scripture. This was a group of men who turned the world upside down. This group of men, with their faith, embraced their mission and the consequences of that mission. And not only were they faithful to that mission, but they did it with a spirit of fullness of joy, with peace, and with contentment. Now, we know in the book of Acts that the warnings Jesus gave to the disciples came true. Remember, we read in the book of Acts that the disciples were kicked out of the synagogue. They were scorned by the religious elite. They were persecuted by the religious establishment. And we read in Acts chapter 5 that they were brought before the high priest and rebuked and threatened for preaching the gospel. And then we read they were beaten. So how did they react to this? Well, the scriptures tell us that they left that council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer that dishonor for the name of Christ. Amazing. And guess what? They kept teaching and they kept preaching. And so we know that these disciples lived with true biblical joy. And listen, beloved, this is the same joy that you and I are to live with as well. Now, here's the problem that we often have. We know intellectually that we're to live with joy, right? We get it up here, right? We know that the Bible tells us we should live with joy and we fight for joy, but sometimes we don't get that joy, do we? We're supposed to have it. Now, let me just say this ahead of time. When we think about the joy we should have, most of us have never had our level of joy tested by the severe persecution that we see in Scripture with the disciples or with Jesus. I mean, most of us have never felt the cold barrel of a gun against our heads. Most of us have not been arrested and shackled for our faith, and I'm very thankful for that, aren't you? Amen? And I firmly believe that if the Lord tarries, these could become real possibilities in our country. But if things like this were to come to pass, the question we want to ask ahead of time, not at the moment, but ahead of time, is how are we going to respond if persecution and if things get more difficult when it comes to our level of joy? How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to respond like the disciples did in Acts chapter 5? Or like we have a propensity to respond in our abundance and in our ease? And the problem that we often have, beloved, again, is so often our circumstances dictate our emotions and our affections. Our circumstances dictate our level of joy. You know, many of us have reserved seats on an emotional roller coaster, right? We never know what we're going to feel like. I mean, think about this. Someone takes the last donut and we're depressed, right? I mean, that depresses me. We lose joy when things don't go according to our plans. We plan a beach day and it rains, so we mope around the house, right? Like it's the end of the world. 
We lose joy when others don't meet our expectations. You said you'd help me today, but now you're telling me you're not going to help me. And isn't it true that things like this on a daily basis are the very things that tend to rob us of joy? And why is that? Listen, if this is happening to you, the reason that this happens is because your joy is more predicated on what's happening to you and around you than on who you are in Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you feel like most of the time you're living in this state of joylessness, then the root cause is that you're failing to see God as the true source of your greatest and your most enduring joy. Beloved, listen, when we filter what's happening to us and what's happening around us through the filter of who we are in Christ and what we have been given in Christ, it's hard not to have joy. C.S. Lewis once said that a melancholy Christian is a contradiction in terms. Even if the Lord calls us home, we can have joy. Amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the, with the Lord, right? So we need to find our joy in God alone. And that is a joy worth fighting for every day. Jesus taught the disciples how to fight for joy. And through the accounts of Scripture, he teaches us how to fight for joy as well. So in our text, remember, we said that Jesus here lays down three key principles that he wants the disciples to remember in order to maintain joy, even in the midst of the sufferings and the sorrows of this world. And last week, we covered the first of these principles, which we'll quickly review. And then we're going to look at the remaining two principles. And remember that by embracing and living out these principles, we can retain our joy regardless of what life may throw at us. Now, last week, we looked at the first key principle in fighting for joy, and it's this. It's to remember what Jesus declared. Remember what Jesus declared. Look with me again at verses 16 through 19. Jesus said, A little while, and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father... So they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now let's remember from last week that Jesus had unloaded a dump truck of earth-shattering news on the disciples, not only in the upper room discourse, but also on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, of course, would soon be arrested. And with the time of Jesus' crucifixion drawing near, he tells the disciples that he is going to do something in them that will bring them a fullness of joy that transcends the darkest and most dire circumstances that they will ever face. He had revealed to the disciples, of course, that he would be killed, that he would rise again on the third day, and that he would be going away in order to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to them. But remember, the disciples could not process this information fast enough. They couldn't really come to grips with everything that Jesus was saying. And one of the reasons for that is they were still looking at his ministry and his kingdom through the eyes of their own perspective. And they were wondering at this point, were we even smart to follow him? Have we wasted the last three years of our life? Have we just done this for naught? 
So Jesus makes a very important declaration to them that even though he's going away, that he indeed would see them again. In other words, Jesus says, look guys, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm not going away. Now certainly the disciples did see Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension. But remember, from Pentecost on, the disciples would see him permanently through the eyes of faith as he was revealed to them through the Holy Spirit. And this is the same revelation that we have today. Amen? We have the Holy Spirit. We see Christ through the Spirit and through his word. In fact, we read in Galatians 4, 6 that God sends forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. We have the very Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. That's how we know Him. We know Him through the revelation, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and through the counsel of His Word. And I think through this declaration that Jesus gave to the disciples that He teaches us two very important principles for us to remember in order for us to fight for joy in this world. First is to look past our present circumstances to the ultimate joy of being secure in Christ. And remember what we said, when things get difficult, we're not to ask how long. The disciples wanted to know how long. You're going away. How long is that going to be? When are you going to come back? What's going to happen here? How long are we going to be on our own? And Jesus wasn't concerned about the how long. He was concerned about the results. I want you to understand why this is happening. I want you to understand the inevitable results of my circumstances, what it might produce in you. I want you to understand how my circumstances are going to work for the glory of God. I want you to understand that if you are focused on my purpose and the redemption that will follow, you will not be robbed of joy. I want you to see what God is going to accomplish in you because of the fact that these circumstances are coming about. The second important principle to remember is to ask questions so as to increase in biblical knowledge and truth. Remember that we said that knowing and applying sound doctrine is critical when it comes to the trials of life. We should not be biblically illiterate Christians, amen? We should be learning the word every day. We should be growing more proficient in the word because in the word, the word forms our very bedrock of our faith. And our understanding of the word is what keeps us on steady ground when the difficulties of life come. And I stated that there's no joy to be found if we are untethered to biblical truth. And it is our understanding of biblical truth that helps us to endure trials. It allows that joy of our salvation to well up inside of us because we know who we are in Christ and why we're here. And when we stand firm in the faith and with conviction, it demonstrates, listen, we know why things are the way they are. And we know of the sure hope that awaits us in glory. And in this we find joy. Listen, this world outside of Christ looks pretty bleak, amen? I mean, it's pretty easy to get depressed looking around in this world, isn't it, with everything that's going on? And yet, if we understand why it's going on, and what's happening, and who we are in Christ, and what we're promised, we can have great joy. Even in the midst of such a sin-cursed world. So let's plow some new ground. Having seen that we fight for joy by remembering what Jesus declared, we come to the second key principle, which is to remember what Jesus discerned. We're going to look at verses 20 through 22. Remember what Jesus discerned. 
Jesus then said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And therefore, you too will have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, once again, what amazes me about these verses, beloved, is the depth of Jesus' discernment over the disciples. And over and over again, we see in John's gospel that Jesus would ask or answer a question in such a way that he would bypass the superfluous and he would get right to the heart of the matter. And such is the case here. Jesus knew what was on the disciples' minds, and they wanted answers about time. They wanted to know about time. They wanted answers about Jesus' immediate itinerary. But Jesus didn't address their specific questions because he wanted to focus on their spiritual state. That was the problem they were having. And of course, he had omniscient insight into their hearts, and he wanted to relieve their spiritual ignorance and bring them comfort. And he would do so by answering questions that they were not asking. He discerned what the disciples most needed. And at the moment, what they needed most was to be comforted. Not to be told the itinerary or the time schedule. So he begins verse 20 by saying, Truly, truly, and this, of course, in Scripture, emphasizes the need to listen carefully. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, be quiet, focus, look at me. I'm about to tell you something that's very, very important. Don't miss what I'm telling you. Now, before we read this, keep in mind that Jesus' words of comfort are presented in such a way as to give the disciples a better understanding of why the aid of the Spirit was so necessary for them. Notice again in verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Jesus was looking at these men and he's thinking and knowing, guys, you don't see it now, but there is a tidal wave of pain coming your way. And my crucifixion and my death and my burial is going to bring you men untold sorrow. In fact, to such a point that you are going to weep and lament. Now that Greek verb there for weep is always used in John's gospel in connection with death. This wasn't weeping for joy or just a little bit of weeping. This would be heavy sobbing. This would be the kind of weeping that you would do over the loss of a loved one. And Jesus is affirming that when he leaves the disciples by his death, they will weep and they will lament. Conversely, he says, listen guys, the world is going to rejoice. The Jewish leaders, the apostate nation, the Gentiles at large, those who so hated Jesus would derive great joy from his death. And so Jesus is saying, man, I want you to be prepared because this is what's happening. Listen carefully here. When I die, you're going to be sobbing. You are going to be torn apart with lamentation. You're going to tear your garments. You are going to be crying, woe is me. And at the same time, the world is going to unleash a tidal wave of jubilation over my death. They're going to be throwing their hats in the air over this. But here's what I want you to discern. Here's what I want you men to rivet in your minds. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
your sorrow is going to be temporary. And likewise, the world's joy is going to be very temporary. And after Jesus' resurrection and after his post-resurrection appearances and after the sending of the Holy Spirit, it indeed did bring joy to the disciples as they remembered all that Jesus had said to them. And Jesus said they would. This was prophesied back in John chapter 14, verse 26. And you know, again, this is worth remembering because while we sorrow now as we look in this world, our sorrow is temporary. Amen? This is the worst it's ever going to get for us. And our sorrow will be turned into joy. And not only will it be turned into great joy at the consummation, we have it now. Conversely, we know that this would cause the world's joy to turn to dismay. When the news of Christ's resurrection reached the ears of the Jewish rulers, we read in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, that they bribed the soldiers, they gave them money to report that Just go say that Jesus' body was stolen while everybody slept. How absurd. So their joy quickly evaporated at Jesus' resurrection. I can imagine that many of them were terrified. Now we need to be careful to understand, I think, two things from verse 20. First, we need to understand that the joy that the disciples received, and that is, beloved, the joy that every believer receives, does not mean that we are free from all sorrow, okay? It means that sorrow, when we endure it, is literally swallowed up in spiritual joy. Okay, so we know that we have sorrow in life. We're not sticking our head in the sand and pretending like nothing is going wrong or or that we don't have difficulty. We do. But when we focus on who we are in Christ, we can endure those difficulties because the joy we have in the Lord swallows up that which is sorrowful. And why is that? What is the mechanism behind that that causes us to think and to believe and to live that way? The mechanism is this, that we now view the cross from the proper perspective. Beloved, in this life, we're going to continue to go through painful trials, right? Life is daily. Life is difficult. But here's the difference. You and I now live with a discerning eye. We don't look at the world the way the world looks at the world. Amen? We see it completely differently. We see it through the eyes of Christ. We fix our eyes and our hope on the finished work of Christ. We wait upon the Lord. We live faithfully through difficult circumstances. And the present enabling of the Holy Spirit in this life and the promise of future glorification in the next. Listen, that ought to be a source of unending joy for us. Rivet your minds on that. I think Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Now let me ask you something. How many of you today feel like your trials are momentary light affliction? That's what I thought. Me too. It doesn't feel like that, does it? You know, every time I read this verse, I have to take this verse by faith. Amen to you? Because life does not feel like momentary light affliction. But yet, we're told, compared to the weight of glory, that you know what? This is all going to evaporate into a joy that we can't know. Is that exciting? 
So we look to those things yet unseen that fill us with hope, which in turn, that produces unending joy. And it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. So we understand, again, beloved, that our joy does not free us from all sorrow. Rather, our sorrow is absorbed because of who we are and what we have in Christ. Now, I think there's a second thing we need to understand from this verse. And it's this, that Jesus is not simply telling the disciples that a time of grief would be followed by a time of joy. Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, the very event which is going to cause you overwhelming grief is the very same event that's going to bring you overwhelming joy. And Jesus gives a vivid example of this in verse 21. And notice what we read there. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now we know that a woman's pain in childbirth stems from the Edenic curse that was pronounced on Eve in the aftermath of the fall. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. And I saw evidence of this firsthand when my wife gave birth to our three children. The labor pains are very intense. It's a very stressful time. But the amazing thing about this is this, that after a woman gives birth, the joy of seeing that new baby thrusts the pain she endured into the background. Now, I think that's a miracle. Amen? In fact, the child born into the world is such a blessing to the mother that she forgets the pain and is now flooded with joy. But I want to talk to the guys for a minute here, okay? I don't think God gave us that same miracle because I was still stressed out after the baby was born. I was happy the babies were here, but I didn't get over it that fast. But my wife was beaming from ear to ear, and that's a great thing. But here's the point. The labor which caused the intense pain is the very thing which produces the joy. So we see that joy and sorrow are connected. They are not separate things. They're not two random emotions that just happen to appear in chronological order. What Jesus is saying is this, that the sorrow must take place if the joy is to come. There is no skipping the sorrow to get to the joy. And that's what we see in the illustration before us here. Now, let me ask the mom something here for a minute. How many of you moms would have liked to skip the morning sickness, the nine months of pregnancy, and the excruciating labor, and just had your baby delivered by Amazon. <laughs> All right. I would be for that, wouldn't you? I mean, that would be a great way to have kids. That would be a great way to have kids. I'd have more kids if that was the case. And guys, here's what I learned. Never ask your wife if she wants another baby when she's in hard labor. Not a good idea. So, using this example of childbirth, Jesus brings forth the spiritual application, and we find that in verse 22. He says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So, just like a woman in labor, the disciples would feel the pain of Jesus' death, his separation, but that very death would result in their rejoicing over his atoning work and the salvation that it would provide. I like what William Hendrickson has to say about this. He says, In light of Easter and of Pentecost, the source of mourning, namely the cross, becomes the source of exaltation so that Paul can exclaim, Far be it from me to glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the disciples, you see, beloved, would now walk in the Spirit with full knowledge of the redemption that Jesus provided, and they would discern, finally, what the Father said when we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They got it. And if you want to see two of the greatest sermons in Scripture, go to the sermons that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and 3. He got it. But in all seriousness, we understand in this life, there is going to be pain and suffering, right? We know that there will be pain and suffering. We know there will be grief to bear. And we bear the spiritual labor pains of living in this sin-cursed world. And there's no way around that. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. We know this. But knowing of the eternal weight and glory that awaits us, knowing of the glories at our final consummation, we can rejoice in any circumstance in this life. Because even death cannot hold us, amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so what do we glean out of this? That knowing... And being in Christ overshadows the hardships that we may face. It all depends on where we put our focus. And Jesus promises us in verse 22 that this is a joy that can never be taken away. Thieves certainly can take our possessions away. Disease can take our health away. Death can take our family away. But nothing can take our joy away. Because Jesus infuses us with a joy that can never be stolen. I love what Matt Carter says in his exposition of John. Here's what he says. He says, The devil longs to steal our joy, placing our joy in things like relationships, works, events, security, and health is like putting your life savings in a piggy bank, leaving it in a high crime district at night with a hammer, and adding a note asking people to leave it alone because it's really valuable. You are foolish to think it will be safe. But if our joy is in Jesus, we trade the piggy bank for Fort Knox and the devil gets a plastic spoon instead of a hammer. That is a joy that can never be touched. Amen? And listen, beloved, this is not a superfluous joy. This is a deep-seated joy. There's nothing superficial about the joy of Christ. It's not like indulging in entertainment or playing a game or eating in a great restaurant where it's joyful for the moment, but that joy evaporates, right? This is a permanent, resident joy deep within our hearts. And this joy does not depend on pleasant outward circumstances. It's not dispensed depending on one's desires or expectations, whether they're met or not. It's not dispensed conditionally so that it only comes when there's no problems or no trials or tribulations or upsets or failures or disappointments. Like I said earlier, it transcends that kind of stuff. You know, I've had the great privilege of traveling to many, many countries in the world. And I've told you this before, but one of the most impactful trips that I ever took was to China when we had the opportunity to meet with the underground church in China. And it, it always amazed me. It seems to me that as I traveled around the world to places where there is really serious persecution of Christians, they seem to have the most joy. Are you mad at the government that they... No, not really. Why not? Because we know that that's what God said is going to happen. But you've lost your job. You've, you've, you've lost your housing. You, you've lost your pension. Praise God. 
Listen, isn't that a joy that you want to know? That's a joy that I want to know. I want to know what, where did you get that joy? You know, when I compare the sufferings that I have done, which are minuscule compared to so many in this world, those that are giving their lives today for the faith and doing it with joy, it just brings conviction upon me that I want to, again, renew a right attitude and spirit within my heart to be able to say, wait a minute here. We've got something greater than this world. We are in a secure place that this world cannot touch. But let me say this, beloved, we're never going to have biblical joy if we take the mindset, you know, if I only had these things, if life was only like this. How many of us have said that? If only this trial wasn't in my life. You know, if only I didn't have this sickness, if only this would happen, if only this wouldn't happen. And we get all these conditions, don't we, that we say, you know what, this is what it's going to take. Listen, that's an effort in futility. You know why? Because there is nothing in this world that does not change, especially your circumstances, right? Your circumstances change all the time. If there's one thing we know about life, it's this. Life changes, right? And I've said this many times. You cannot find permanent joy or satisfaction in that which is temporal. God put within us an eternal soul. And only an eternal God can satisfy an eternal soul. Not this stuff. When we don't have joy... We push the joy of our salvation into the background. And we want it just the opposite. We want the joy of our salvation to push those things that might keep us from joy to the background. To swallow up those things. So that we can indeed endure all things. Well, we know for a short time the disciples sorrowed over Jesus' death and absence. But that gave way to rejoicing in his resurrection. The permanency of joy came through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then the disciples finally discerned all that Jesus had said. That's when they gained true perspective on the cross of Christ. And that, beloved, is what turned their sorrow into joy. And they never lost that joy in spite of everything they suffered for Christ. So we need that joy. And we need to discern how to look heavenward and not sideways. And when we do, we will share in that same joy because the Spirit of God will illuminate our hearts and minds to the understanding of the Word and we realize who we are and what we have in Christ. Well, that brings us to a third principle to remember in order to fight for joy. In addition to remembering what Jesus declared, what He discerned, we need to remember also what Jesus differentiated. What Jesus differentiated. Look at verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Now, we often forget that when it comes to prayer, the disciples looked at things very differently prior to Pentecost. Remember that under the old covenant, people turned to the high priest and to the sacrifice of animals as they petitioned God. And in that sense, remember that the priests acted as mediators to God and people approached God through them and thus the people's prayers were typically offered in general to the God of Israel. Now, Jesus teaches the disciples that under the new covenant, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that their relationship with God would now be different. That his resurrection 
and his death would now allow believers to approach God in a conscience, personal relationship so that they could address him as father. And Jesus would become the new and living way through whom believers could now confidently approach the throne of grace. In other words, Jesus now would become the permanent high priest. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples' prayer life would be different beyond their wildest dreams. Up to this point, remember, the disciples nor anyone else prayed in Jesus' name, right? Now, certainly the disciples had asked Jesus many things during his earthly ministry, but that arrangement was about to come to a close. And Jesus is saying to the guys, listen, men, there is a new dispensation, a new covenant, a new time is upon us. There is something different that is about to be ushered in. Now, on the surface, these two verses seem to contradict one another. If you'll notice, at the beginning of verse 23, Jesus implies that the disciples won't ask anything of him. And yet at the end of verse 23 and beginning of verse 24, Jesus goes on to urge them to ask for things in his name. So what's the deal here? What does he mean by this? Well, first, the reason in that day in verse 23 that they will not ask anything of Jesus is not because they don't have any questions. Rather, it's because what he is saying to them concerning his death and his burial and his resurrection will soon be made clear to them. In other words, Jesus is contextually addressing the work of redemption. And basically what he's saying is, look, you're going to understand this fully, so you won't need to ask me questions about this. Remember that after his resurrection, during his 40 days on earth, Jesus taught the disciples much and he was still with them. In fact, we read about this in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 where he says to those he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So there was much that Jesus revealed to them after his resurrection. But then Jesus goes on to urge the disciples, notice, to ask the Father for things in his name. And what he is doing here is Jesus is stressing his mediatorial role to the disciples. So he's saying this, on the one hand, guys, that what I'm about to accomplish is going to be made understandable to you so that when you see me again, you're going to get it. You're going to understand this. On the other hand, there's going to be trouble in your life. And although I will not be with you physically, I will indeed be interceding on your behalf in the kingdom of heaven. So it is right to ask for what you need from the Father. And all of this, Jesus says, will result in your joy being made full. Now, one thing we often miss in verses like this is something I think is very important, a real important nugget here. Jesus teaches us here, beloved, that prayer is a means to joy. Do you hear what I said? Prayer is a means to joy. If you lack joy, pray more. How often are you communing with the Father? Our prayer life is vital. It's our lifeline to God. Anybody here pray too much? Anybody say, oh, I pray way too much. How many of you could pray more? Every hand ought to go up, right? Prayer, listen. 
We can sap ourselves of joy if we're not in communion with the Father. Prayer is a means to joy. And why is that? Because our communion with God reminds us, okay, of the unfathomable riches that we have in Christ. When we go to the Lord in prayer, we understand who He is and what He does. And I think Ken Hughes adds some important clarity about prayer here and praying in Jesus' name. Here's what he says. He says, praying in Christ's name means coming on the basis of his merit, not ours. We cannot think in any way that God will hear us because of our virtue. We cannot come to him in our own name. Prayer is not a means by which we get God to do what we want. Rather, it is a means by which God does through us what he wants. Oswald Chambers says, the idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. This happens when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and our hearts are so in tune with the Lord that we pray for those things He desires for us. And as we pray in His nature, we find answers to our prayers and we experience increased joy. Amen. This is how our joy is made full. Listen, under the new covenant, things are different. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christ leaves us wanting for nothing. We have free access to God, amen? That's incredible. And He alone grants the desires of our heart. He alone provides all that we need. And He alone is all that is ultimately satisfying. We don't ever want to forget that the cross of Christ is really the very nucleus of redemptive history. And it alone has the power to turn our sorrow into joy. And we know that we live in a world filled with sin and depravity. And that's why every day, beloved, we need to fight for joy. You know, many of us live in despair because it appears that there's no hope, that we don't see a way out, that life just seems to suffocate us. But listen, Jesus can bring hope and joy out of any sorrow that you have. Any sorrow you have. And what amazes me is that even in the face of his own unimaginable sufferings, as he was going to the cross, okay, he countered the sorrow of the disciples with the promise of joy that would follow their pain. He was concerned about them. Some of us, I think, would have more joy if we got our eyes off ourselves and eyes onto others. Amen. And we're told in Scripture that Jesus himself endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And this would be an eternal joy because it's only found in our eternal God. So the question for you today is this. Are you living in the joy of the Lord? What is your level of joy? I mean, we can look good on the outside. We can look good on Sunday morning. We can, you know, we can fellowship with people and put on a smile. But what is life like for you joy-wise Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Thank goodness it's Friday, right? What is your joy like? Are you an affectional atheist? In other words, are you seeking joy in other things besides God? Examine your hearts honestly. Where are you trying to find joy? You know, if you're looking outside of God, you're never going to get anything that's going to bring you lasting joy. It's only when we seek joy in God that we have a joy that lasts. So remember what Jesus declared. Remember what he discerned. Remember what he differentiated. 
You know, the Apostle Paul cries out to us today as he did in Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, rejoice. And if we do, then in good times, as well as in bad times, nothing will overshadow the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Well, Father, we know that our joy comes through the grace of the cross. And Lord, we we understand that through the suffering and sorrow of Jesus, we have been reconciled back to God. We've been cleansed from the condemnation of sin. And we thank you, Lord, for the intimacy that we now enjoy with you. It is certainly the ground of our comfort. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to remember who we are in Christ and what our true purpose in life is as we face the trials and tribulations of this life. I pray, Lord, that you will give us joy when we daily pick up our crosses to serve you. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep our carnal reasonings and our fleshly desires at bay when we're tempted to find joy in other places. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in righteousness with a spirit of patience and with endurance so as to profit by all that you allow into our lives. And Father, how we thank you for your precious word that that you bring to our remembrance Jesus' words and help us to remember the words that he brought to the disciples when, like them, we too find ourselves fearful and sorrowful and anxious about what this life might bring. And I pray, Lord, that we would fight the good fight of faith so that we would finish the race and that we might be able to enter into your presence in the fullness of that joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.